Well, we are taking up this morning the uh, light of the 16th century Reformation. We hope to do so not in merely a historical lesson, although I find that very engaging. Maybe you do as well, if you like history. Um, I'm also not taking this up as a mere celebration. This is not some kind of a self-congratulating uh, effort on my part to say, yay us, we love Luther, we love Calvin, we love Knox, and we love the rest. Um, we, we want to look at these glorious, shining truths that rocked the world 500 years ago. We want it to be very applicatory, if you will, as we look at five themes that, that were so prominent uh, in, the, in, the, in the Reformation. There is an ancient phrase. You have an outline if you want to follow along there. Uh, and this uh, is worth repeating. Ecclesia reformata, semper refer, reformanda, which means the church reformed, always reforming. Always reforming is a, is a phrase that is regularly being brought out by, by the reform today. And sometimes I think we forget the first part. The church reformed, ever reforming. We're not just saying we're just always reforming or always changing, changing for the sake of change. This does not mean let's go out there and be as innovative or imaginative or relevant to whatever fad happens to be coming down the pike. That's how some people have actually read this. But the idea is to be returning again and again and again to the font of Scripture and to be molded and shaped by that glorious truth of being conformed to the Lord Jesus. We are image bearers. We don't create the truth. We reflect the truth. We don't make things up, but we receive from our God the realities of his holy scripture. And that brings us to another ancient phrase, another Latin one, post tenebris lux, after darkness, light. And that certainly well describes the Reformation period, what took place in, in, the, uh, in the 1500s when the Lord brought the church out of her dark ages. And it is certainly the crying need of our dark day, our postmodern day, where truth is being thrown out the window and we need a light that comes from above. As we read in Isaiah chapter 9, the people who walk in darkness need to see a great light. Those who live in a dark land need the light to shine upon them. That is the crying need of our culture. So it needs to be said that the Reformation is, is, it did not reform the Bible it did not reform the gospel. It did not reform worship. Worship was already there in a sense. The Bible was already there. Gospel is already there. The church was reformed and reformed to the already present Bible, returning to the ancient good news, as well as the way that God is to be worshipped. And what had come to pass was ultimately a keeping of the Bible away from the people. That's the condition in which the church found itself when Luther stepped on the scene. They were keeping the word of God away from the church, keeping Christ afar off, as we'll see in tonight's message, keeping worship from the church. We're going to see down the line that the idea of the congregation worshiping was foreign during that day. All of the worship took place by the leadership. The leadership was the church. 
Just like Louis said, I am the state, the Pope was saying, I am the church. And you just have to be connected with me and everything will be well. So even worship was being kept away from the people. We can even say the church itself was kept away from the church. So we begin today with the revival of the Bible. If the Reformation is anything, it is a return to the eclipsed Word of God, which had been buried beneath an ancient language. It was still accessible if you knew Latin, and yet the desire to bring it into the various languages of the world, that was resisted. And it had become entombed beneath the traditions of men. It is well that we mark that the Reformation began in Germany. But it might be worth saying that the year the world turned upside down began not in 1517, but really began back in 1440. We kind of have to keep what happened in, in, in Mainz, Germany, so many years before the nailing of the 95 Theses. What happened? It was the inventor, invention of the printing press. Gutenberg came to that place, and and his great invention came to life. You know, Luther himself acknowledged his debt to that. He said, printing is the ultimate gift of God and the greatest one. That's how awestruck he was of what the Lord had provided. And, And little wonder why. Do you realize that 17 days after Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle wall, to castle door, 17 days later, you could find those 95 theses on the streets of London in just a mere 17 days. From the years 1518, the year after he nailed his famous theses, to 1525, the writings of Martin Luther, including the German translation of of the Bible, constituted uh, upwards of a full one-third of all printed works at the time. So when you went to the bookstore... One-third of the shelf was the writings of Luther or a Lutheran Bible. A hand-scribed Bible in that day would cost thousands of dollars. Imagine if when you wanted to have your own personal copy of the Bible that would have been written by scribes, it would cost you three, three grand just for one Bible. But a printed one? You could buy a printed Bible in Luther's day for the cost of two to three weeks' pay of a skilled worker. Definitely affordable. So as many have said, this is one of the greatest inventions that has ever seen the face of this world. Somebody has said it was the the greatest and most practical invention in 1440 since the creation of the wheel. So what happened? Information became available just worldwide to so many people. And not just the school, not just the universities. Popular opinion became important almost overnight. Popular opinion, almost, it became uh, vital and, and important to people. Minority voices now could be heard instead of having this politically correct or ecclesiastically correct version. And so this became a superhighway for information, and a great scientific revolution took place through uh, the invention of the, of the printing press. And most importantly, perhaps, through the print, the, the freedom of thought, the expression of speech, freedom of speech, freedom of thought. 
The blessing um, of cheap printing is that you could disseminate the truth more effectively. But of course, you know, the bane of cheap printing is that you can also disseminate lies and folly, uh, equally so. It is ironic, as I was doing my study on the, on the Gutenberg Press, he moved, Gutenberg moved to Maine's in part to capture some of the traffic going on there generated by, you guessed it, by relics. He put his printing uh, shop on the very street where he knew that there would be a lot of pilgrims coming and looking at the relics. And when you saw the relic, you got your indulgence. It had to be written out. And these were expensive. They put them on vellum instead of on paper. And he wanted to get a piece of that pie. So it wasn't just a, you know, a really holy, I just want to print Bibles. He was there to make money. And it's fascinating. It's ironic that one of the first things he was interested in would be to print these indulgences. The very thing that Luther would stand up against in 1517. And then that printing press would be an engine for good against evil. Dear ones, that's the nature of the world that you and I live in. We live in a world that has both, has both good and evil in it. Any good thing can be taken over by the devil and abused to bring forth evil. And that's why we need the message here today. We need the great light of the word to shine forth as a mighty sun, as it were, to dispel the darkness, to banish by its bright truth and its burning power all the wandering lesser lights of men. 2 Corinthians 10 couldn't be any clearer When Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. How do you do that? You do it by the word of God. In 2 Peter, all throughout this first chapter, the true knowledge of God in the Lord Jesus is, is the theme of this uh, opening section. It has a- appeared. He has come in divine power, calling us to his glory in verse 3, seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. This true knowledge of God makes for an abundant and powerful entrance into the very eternal kingdom of Christ the Lord. Verse 11. In this way, the entrance of the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you as we're taking the word and making our calling and our election sure. And then Peter reminds his hearers. He breaks into this testimony, reminded of what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, the majesty of Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh. It speaks about his, we saw and felt his power uh, and, and his coming probably speaking about his second coming, coming in great glory uh, there upon the holy and majestic mount of transfiguration. He goes on in verse 16, we have followed no clever tales uh, to dupe you. Rather, we beheld the all-sufficient prophet of prophets, the word made flesh in glory, speaking to Moses and to Elijah. Why do you think those two were sent? if it was not to see that he is in line with them, that he is the light of the the prophetic movement in the Old Testament, and all the prophets point 
to him. Jesus was the glorious prophet on that mount. It was no fable or dream as they overheard the the talk uh, that Jesus had with them about his exodus, about his leaving, about his death on the cross, about his sacrifice. Jesus came as a priest and he had a sacrifice to render unto the Father to bring forth salvation to all who would trust in him. What will he sacrifice? He sacrifices himself. He lays down his own life for his sheep. He speaks there with these two servants about his sacrifice of sacrifices, accomplishing redemption and bringing in an everlasting righteousness. And it was no deception on the part of these three, James, John, and Peter, these witnesses who heard the father exalting his son. This, behold, is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Reminiscent of Psalm 2, my, my beloved son, I have set upon my holy hill of Zion. He is my king. I am giving him all of the nations. All things are his. So Peter is testifying here the power and the glory and the clarity and the excellence of the truth and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ produced by the word, produced by what he heard, and see how this flows then immediately into the last three verses as he turns his attention to the scriptures. This was unforgettable to Peter and the other two apostles. But now Peter commends us, to us, this very light to shine in a very dark place. Your heart. What light? Peter, we can't join you on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, oh, yes, you can. This is the testimony. Bring forth the word into your heart. This light begins as a lamp in verse um, in verse 19, it's a, a, a lamp that is shining in this dark place, but it is a piece, as it were, of that coming full dawn of the day, the morning star that is to arise at the second coming to banish all darkness and eternal let there be light, as it were, when Jesus uh, comes to this earth. But Peter, how do we gain what you and John and James were privileged to enjoy? He tells us. Notice how he says in verse 19, he doesn't say, so you have the prophetic word. He says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. Our scriptures are not the product of the prophet's own imagination, his own interpretation from his own heart, nor is the apostolic message either um, of of the 12 who were set apart. Our Bibles came about not by human ingenuity or human will, but by the will of God. By the Holy Spirit, so moving, holy men of old, so as to speak from God. That's the picture here in the last verse, verse 21. So, dear ones, in this point here, we see that there is a Bible, God's Word. And that is the most precious commodity that any nation can have in its possession. Whatever wealth or strength or gifts we may have as a, as a country, nothing compares with those books that are, I hope, laying on your laps. Don't give up real, real editions. Don't go digital. They're helpful. I'm not saying don't ever do it. I do it. But get a Bible. So this it is given to us not just to have life but to have life more abundantly god is there is a book that will make you rich eternally it'll make you happy beyond your dreams it will lift you up to where you could never arrive 
without it. You are so lost and helpless without this book. And what a sad situation we see that greets our eyes. You know, the Bible is still the bestseller. And yet it's one of the least read, apparently, among all the books upon our shelves. There is a God who speaks powerfully, who speaks clearly, and most importantly, he speaks lovingly in the lines of the Old and the New Testament. In verse 4, it speaks about these promises. There have been given to us, seeing his divine power granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Verse 4, it's through, by these he's granted to us his precious, magnificent promises. Because God is such a saving God, he gives these hands, as it were, these promises to us. They are precious, or they are rich promises. They are not only rich, but they are exceedingly great promises. His rich, exceedingly great promises are, notice, given. They've been granted. And the tense of that verse has the idea they're they're given with a continued action following behind them. God continues to promise these great and marvelous things to all of those who will come and receive. It's an amazing book. It's a glorious book. It is the book of God. J.C. Ryle, who is just like many of us, are just blown away by the wonders of the Bible. He said, God is continually holding out inducements to men to listen to him, to obey him, to serve him. He has shown his perfect knowledge of human nature by spreading over the book a perfect wealth of promises suitable to every kind of experience and every condition of life. Their name is Legion. The subject is almost inexhaustible. There's hardly a step in man's life from childhood to old age, hardly any position in which man can be placed for which the Bible has not held out encouragement to everyone who desires to do right in the sight of God. There are shales and wills in God's treasury for every condition about God's infinite mercy and compassion, about his readiness to receive all who repent and believe, about his willingness to forgive, pardon, and absolve the chief of sinners about his power to change hearts and to alter our corrupt nature, about the encouragements to pray and to hear the gospel and draw near to the throne of grace, about strength for duty, comfort in trouble, guidance in perplexity, help in sickness, consolation in death, support under bereavement, happiness beyond the grave, reward in glory. About all these things, there is an abundant supply of promises in the word. No one can form an idea of its abundance unless he carefully searches the scriptures, keeping the subject steadily in view. If anyone doubts it, I can only say, come and see. Come and see. What wonderful promises we have here in the word. How then does this morning star, this eternal dawn, which is speaking and embodying the Lord Jesus, How does this touch us by the word? And here is where we want to begin to wrap up and and know of a certainty that this truth is for believer and for unbeliever alike. Christian, you are the light of the world. The Christian is described not only as the salt of the earth that restrains, but you are the light of the world and you speak the truth into this dark place. It's been said, well, that you may be the only Bible that that some people ever read. And so we need to bring across the wonders 
of being a Christian, of this light having dawned through the lamp in our hearts to convey to those around us what we have found. Just as Peter says, we saw his majesty. We, by faith, have felt the power of that world that is to come. And we convey these things to those around us. You are to bring across the wonders of your wonderful counselor, Isaiah 9. We need to bring across the power of Jesus Christ, who is our mighty God. We need to bring to the world of time the one who is called Everlasting Father in that passage. Not to confuse the three persons of the Trinity, but the eternality of Christ. That he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to be overflowing with a peace that surpasses understanding through this Prince of Peace. When the world sees this in us, that's the light that attracts them to the gospel. When he sees that we are not at peace, when they see that we are not looking to this wonderful counselor, but looking to the flesh, when they see that we are fixed upon the things of time, leaning upon the, the frail reeds that this world offers, they recognize that in us because they're doing the same thing. In short, we need to be walking wonders of grace. You know, they talk about the seven wonders of the ancient world. Those pale in significance next to the work of God, making you a living temple in whom God dwells. And that's only done by being founded and built upon the Bible, the Word of God. And people around us need to feel these things in us. They need to hear them spoken. They need to see them uh, put into practice in our ways, in our attitudes, in our actions. What does the world need most but what we have just seen right here in 2 Peter chapter 1? If you could come up with a diagnosis, what does this world need most? How would you respond to that question? Well, the world needs the knowledge and the truth of God. That's the emphasis that Peter brings forth through the whole letter, beginning from the very first verses. As he speaks about grace and peace being multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, and then going on and speaking about the divine power. God has spoken. His truth, his knowledge is available. The world needs the grace of God and his goodness that changes people into the image of the Lord. A grace that saves them from their sins, and a grace then that makes them whole, makes them good. The world also needs to feel the power of the sacred, needs to feel the power of the transcendent. There are many people living in this life with their face just down in the dirt. There's nothing for me here. There's no life. There's no meaning. There's no answer. And the transcendent, glorious, sacred message of the Bible pulls us upward. They need to have that transcendence, that there is some, someone who is worthy to know and to worship. And oh, how the world needs the love of God, given in the promises that God has love for you. God can save you. God can do wonderful things in your life. These are the aspects of the light that needs to shine and which shines alone in the word. You are the light of the world, and you need to be read by those around you as such. You need to be a people who are gripped by the Bible, 
where the darkness, the enmity that once reigned in you through the flesh um, has now been taken away and is, as it were, burned out of us. Again, this passage, we could spend several messages talking about what does that look like in a Christian. We see in verse 4, your identity in the Lord by these promises. When he says, by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. You've been snatched out of this world. You have been changed. You've been given a new nature that's in conformity to Christ, according to his image and knowledge and righteousness and in holiness. That's your identity. That's who and what you are. Here's your growth. It's so important to grow as a Christian and not grow stagnant. As it speaks here about adding to your faith all these virtues, virtues, these qualities, including uh, self-control, including uh, perseverance and godliness, all the way leading up to brotherly kindness and love. Again, the world needs to see these things in us, that we're advancing in them, and, 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 and they see an abundance in the church. This passage also speaks of our battle with the world and the flesh and the devil. It is possible for a Christian to be very useless. Would you be a useless Christian? Would you be an unfruitful Christian? Paul himself feared. He said, I'm afraid that I would be a castaway if I were not following hard after the Lord. See, we stick to the truth. We don't follow cleverly devised fables. It's the, the word of God that keeps us from sin, keeps us from this blindness and short-sightedness, having forgotten our purification from our former sins, and as it were, falling back into them. So, that's the third thing. Are we in the fight? Are we in the battle uh, by the word of God? We saw not too recently the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6. And then lastly, there is to be a healthy focus upon the future, upon the coming kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've said it many times, heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Are you prepared, you see? How would you enter into glory? Peter says, so an entrance. In this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, will be abundantly supplied to you. Are you going to be like a ship that comes into its harbor? It has been out in the high seas of life, trading and bringing in more and more loot, more and more booty, as it were, for the kingdom of God, and you come in heavily laden because of what Christ is doing in you? Or do you come in as a ship that has been facing hurricanes, has sailed right into them, and brings, brings forth affliction and trials and hardship. And you have to throw all of your cargo overboard to save your skin. Isn't there a verse in Job that says, being saved by the skin of your teeth? How do you want to come into heaven? Grow in these ways. Live up to your high calling in Christ Jesus. The word of God is what the, the world needs now, just as the, the world of Luther and Calvin needed in their day. And may it begin with us. Tonight we'll return and look at the gospel, what's so central to the Bible, and that is the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, and especially the wonderful message of justification by faith alone. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your truth. 
Thank you for opening our blind eyes and our deaf ears and our dead hearts to be quickened uh, to the life that we have in Christ. Help us, Lord, like Peter himself, living as a sojourner, uh, ready uh, for the, uh, the time when you would take us home. Remind us, Lord, that our home is indeed above. And help us to live lives that reflect that in all that we do, that those around us recognize that difference, that we shine by the word of God that is not bushled in our lives, but rather set on a candlestick so that all may see. Lord, turn the nations to yourself, we pray. How we need, as it were, another reformation, another glorious revival, uh, to come to the truth of your word, and especially to Jesus Christ held out to us so freely in the gospel. We bless you and thank you for your mercies to us this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.